All right. Welcome back to The Psychology of Depression and Anxiety. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Eilers. I am a licensed clinical psychologist and the author of the book, For When Everything is Burning. And I have a guest with me. Her name is Alexandra Reynolds. Would you like to introduce yourself, Alexandra? Yeah. Hi, my name is Alexandra. A lot of folks call me Alex. I am an OCD sufferer. I've had OCD probably my whole life. I think I started having symptoms at age four that I can recall. I am an OCD advocate with the IOCDF or the International OCD Foundation. They are the largest nonprofit for people with lived experience and professionals. And I also run support groups with NoCD. Some people call it NOCD. And I am also currently a graduate student studying to become an LPC in clinical mental health and a mom. <laughs> you are a very busy person. I know a little bit about what that's like myself. And you are, you are exactly the kind of person that I love to have as a guest on the podcast because from you, we're going to get both personal knowledge and professional knowledge. And I think that's so special that you can not only speak to what it is like to live with these symptoms and what it's like to be in treatment for these symptoms. But you can also speak to the professional side of things because you're you're a, a support group um, facilitator, you're in grad school. So you got you got that research and that literature side too, and you're combining them into one brain. And so I am super excited to chat with you today and download some of your knowledge. Oh my gosh, yes, I'm so excited to be here. And the cool thing about that kind of having both in one package, I think is that there are so many more folks like me who are starting to go specifically into the OCD field after having their own lived experience because it is such a misunderstood and misdiagnosed disorder. And so we become really passionate, I think somewhere along our journeys. And a lot of us turn to going to that professional side or at least to advocacy. Mm -hmm. It's so important too, because then for people that you're working with or helping, if, if you say to that person, you know, hey, this can get better, it's not an empty promise because they can just look at you and see, oh, this can get better. I mean, that's, that's something a lot of people ask me too. Like, you know, I run intensive outpatient programs. So I group therapy is a big part of my career too. And a lot of people ask me like, you know, why did you get into this? Have you dealt with depression and anxiety personally? And I do not mind telling them yes. And I've had so many people say to me, like seeing who you are today and knowing that you like more or less have been me in the past, was actually more helpful to me than anything you actually like some certain therapy skill you taught me. Because what, what a lot of people I think are missing, especially early on in treatment or early on in their therapy journey is like hope it is, is proof or opt like belief that this thing can actually be treated or get better. And anyone can tell them it can, of course, people will, you know, people will say, Oh, it can get better. You're going to be all right. But if you can prove it to a person, if you can be like, well, here I am. I've been where you are and I am now here and you can do the, some of the things that I've done to get here. It's a valuable thing. It's a special thing. I think it basically makes you a superhero in my opinion. Oh my gosh. Don't say that. I would love to be a superhero, <laughs> but unfortunately I am human, but thank you. I think you're a superhero. And I, appreciate that. I do. I agree with that. I think what started me on this journey was group therapy. When I started group therapy with my own therapist, um, 
I realized that I wasn't alone and I didn't understand how much feeling really alone and isolated with depression and OCD had made me until suddenly I was surrounded by folks just like me and some of the shame and the stigma that I was carrying that I didn't know I was carrying started to lift and I felt like, oh, I want, I want more. I want this all the time. And not only do I want this all the time, but I want other people like me to have this because it was just as instrumental in my recovery as the actual therapy was. Yeah. Getting that validation, that understanding, that acknowledgement, and maybe most importantly, just like realizing that you are not alone is, is, one of my favorite things about group that's that's why i'm so passionate about group too because i love to see that moment when people look around the room and they're like oh this is not just me and like maybe you knew it logically but to again i'm a i'm a big proof guy right to see proof of that right in front of your face undeniable proof other people think and feel and experience some of the same things that i do it's different it lands differently for people um so before we start talking about treatment and, and like what helps people with OCD, I think it would be good to talk a little bit about what it is and it isn't, it being OCD, because I'm obviously, I don't have to tell you this, but a lot of people think they know what OCD is and what many people describe as OCD is actually just a, a, a mix of other anxiety disorders and sometimes just like personality traits. So maybe let's start with what it isn't because there are so many misconceptions so many people describe any anybody who has perfectionistic tendencies or any kind of behavioral rigidity or even just like is a really high achiever you know these are all things that get labeled as OCD um what are some of the things you see commonly like described as OCD or as OCD symptoms that that really are not that inherently yeah, I laugh because it's just, it's so much and it can really feel as a sufferer overwhelming to see all these things out there. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's just the way it's been in our society for a long time. I remember someone gifting me as a joke after I was first diagnosed this OCD action figure. And it had like, a bunch of cats and like a bunch of it was just a really weird stereotype and I wasn't sure what it was supposed to be or where it was coming from and I was like this isn't OCD this has nothing to do with OCD so I think a lot of folks when they think about OCD or hear someone say oh that's so OCD or I'm so OCD they think of that stereotypical type a person so it's going to be someone who's a really high achiever like you mentioned it's going to be someone who has all their pens and pencils color coded and everything is in binders a la Leslie Nope um and mm -hmm. you know they keep their house really really clean like you could eat off of the floor practically Maybe it's someone who is what they would call a germaphobe and washes their hands a lot. I've also seen people talk about intrusive thoughts. And when they talk about intrusive thoughts, you know, intrusive thoughts are a huge feature of OCD. And a lot of people online, especially on TikTok, will say something like, oh, I let my intrusive thoughts win. And they're talking about something they wanted to do, mm -hmm. right? Maybe they wanted to go to Taco Bell and get like a big 
unhealthy meal and they did it. So they let their intrusive thoughts win. And that's not what an intrusive thought is, right? Not an OCD and OCD or intrusive thoughts are what we call ego dystonic or going against our values. They're things we don't want to happen. And they're things that bring us a lot of distress and a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. So I think people really fixate on sort of these external things that maybe they feel like they can see about OCD. And what they do is extrapolate them into this stereotype that actually looks nothing like OCD because most of the experience of OCD for us is internal. It's the thoughts and the distress they cause. And the rituals are simply a way to try to temporarily relieve that distress. And a lot of the time, the rituals, if you look at what the obsession is, they don't really make sense. They don't necessarily correlate. Super important definitions there. And and you already said it. I just want to like highlight and repeat to make sure everyone gets this. Because even my very mental health savvy therapy clients sometimes mix these things up. So an intrusive thought is something that is is like repetitive right and is something you objectively do not want to happen or do not want to do or do not want to experience if you have a like a singular thought that pops into your head and it's something you want to do but for some reason think maybe I shouldn't you know maybe maybe that's a bad idea but like I really want to like like you said I want to I I want to eat this food right now, but I shouldn't, or I really want to like yell at this person right now, but I know I'll get in trouble. That's not an OCD intrusive thought. That's an impulse. Those are different types of things. So, so two really important things in that one is simply the definition, but the other is that intrusive thoughts, even if they are incredibly repetitive, do not represent desires or wishes. And in fact, in most cases, they are things we explicitly hope will not happen. I have so many therapy clients express so much distress about this because they say, I I keep thinking about this thing. Does that mean I want it to happen? Does that mean I hope this thing will happen? And what I usually ask them is like, well, how do you feel when this thought comes up? And they'll often say like, I feel terrified or angry or incredibly sad when I think about this thing. And I'll usually say to them then, well, that means you don't want it to happen. If you wanted it to happen, you would feel excitement or motivation or joy or release of tension when you think about doing this thing. Um, And so I think those are incredibly important to delineate. And I'm glad we're on the same page with, excuse me, same page with that. Absolutely, absolutely. So another uh, post that I saw from you a little bit ago that really caught my eye, and it it looks like it caught a lot of people's eye based on the response you got to it. Um, You had a post called What My OCD Has Taken From Me, and sort of a bullet point list of, you know, what's been negatively impacted in your life by symptoms of OCD. Would you be willing to talk a little bit more about that? Because it seemed like that that was some content that really resonated with like thousands of people. You know, what is it actually like to live with OCD and not just not the non OCD traits that we talked about before, but actual clinical OCD? What is what is I know it's a huge question, but what is it like? Yeah, it is a huge question. I think what makes it a huge question is that 
to me, OCD is a disorder that it doesn't affect just one area of your life. Once it really gets a hold, it affects all areas of your life. And when it gets really severe, a lot of us don't have very good insight. So we don't understand that what we're experiencing is actually a mental illness until maybe it gets very, very severe and debilitating. And we maybe don't understand that our, you know, rituals, our compulsions aren't helping us. We think that they're keeping us safe or that they're logical behaviors. And I know for myself, that was the case. Um, I grew up in a, you know, traditional Latinx Hispanic household and mental health was not talked about. It was very taboo. It was actually actively discouraged. And I did not have the knowledge or the language to express what was going on with me, even though I knew that something was wrong. So growing up, I felt like all of my intrusive thoughts and my compulsions and the struggles that they caused were actually a really big moral failing. And that feeds right back into the OCD. So when OCD takes a hold in your life, it essentially latches onto anything that you care about, anything that you love, anything that is of value to you. And it turns it into, no exaggeration, your worst nightmare. It turns it into your worst nightmare. So I cared about school. It made it almost impossible for me to complete my school assignments. I had to read and reread things over and over again. I copied my notes over and over again at home. I, you know, I failed classes in high school because of this and I was punished for it because no one understood that what I was going through was a mental health or mental illness struggle. So on top of the shame and frustration that comes from not being able to do things that people normally do, you are shamed by everyone around you because no one can see what's going on in your head and understand that it's OCD. And it will do this thing where it latches onto whatever you love the most over and over again until you essentially have nothing, nothing good left in your life. It took jobs. I couldn't hold down jobs because I would start caring about them and OCD would take that. It would make me late. It would make me, you know, a poor performer or I couldn't learn the job fast enough. It made me check my stuff at work over and over. It took school. It took friendships because I would start having obsessions around my friends and then I would either avoid them or I would go constantly to them for reassurance. So it it took everything, romantic relationships. I mean, there came a point where I literally was in an apartment scraping by, by myself with almost no one around me because OCD had taken it all. And once it does that, it kind of takes your identity because anything that you feel like you may love or you may enjoy, you start doubting it. And, you know, that's why we call it the doubting disorder, right? You doubt everything and you even start doubting who you are and what comes hand in hand with that at the end is depression. I'm sure it gets to the point where anything good that enters your life, whether that's a person, a pursuit, a hobby, you just, 
mentally probably just start the countdown. Like, how long is it going to be before this gets wrapped up in my OCD and is no longer something that I enjoy or can benefit from anymore? Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, I didn't know it was OCD, but I would start the countdown. I'd be like, well, how long till I mess this one up, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it just it really comes in almost like a fog or sometimes I call it, I call it an octopus with mm-hmm. infinite tentacles and every single tentacle gets into every single aspect of your life. The more scary and intimate, the better. And it turns everything that you love into everything that terrifies you, scares you, disgusts you the most. And it shrinks your world very tiny until you're not doing anything but having intrusive thoughts and doing compulsions all day long. And I know for me, that looked like being agoraphobic, not leaving my house and basically doing rituals in my house all day. I know it can be very similar to like depression or other mood disorders in that regard too, where having something good in your life almost becomes a liability because it's something that can get messed up or it's something that you can lose. And I know that a lot of my therapy clients with depression express some of these same ideas that like, I almost don't want to have good things in my life because I know that they don't always do anything good for me. Like I can have good things and still feel awful. And sometimes having good things makes me feel worse because then it gives me no excuse. Like I have a good life, but I still feel terrible. This doesn't make sense. Like, how dare I? What's wrong with me? And do you ever wonder, I, this probably isn't the kind of thing that could ever be proven. So I'm just, I'm just going to make up a theory on the spot and you can tell yeah. me what you think of it. Do you think sometimes it's just operant conditioning, like Pavlov's dogs, you know, like I have this intrusive (laughs) thought. I don't mean that to sound like disparaging, but like I did this thing that had nothing to do with the intrusive thought, but the intrusive thought did not come to fruition. Therefore, my brain links these two things and says, maybe if I keep doing that thing, that will keep this outcome at bay. Do, Do you think sometimes it's that simple? It could be. I think um, it's so poorly understood why we do these things and why we get stuck on these thoughts. There's a lot of actual research going on right now, which is super exciting on why folks with OCD, you know, think and behave the way they do. And I can't remember the exact areas of the brain, but there is a lot of strong evidence showing that we essentially get stuck in what they call this loop of wrongness. There is a part of our brain that will get stuck on these intrusive thoughts and the thoughts become so numerous and so repetitive and so disturbing that we essentially feel this uncontrollable urge to carry out these compulsions. And I think the compulsions a lot of times are kind of happenstance. Sometimes they make sense, right? Like for myself, I may get stuck on a thought that I am going to, you know, I went out with a friend and I'm going to bring a really yucky illness home and, you know, kill my whole family. Because of course I'm going to, you know, OCD likes to take it to that catastrophic end. So maybe in that sense, I'm going to take off all my clothes and I'm going to, you know, shower and scrub myself for an hour. That can make sense to people, right? But other times I think more what happens is because a lot of this is going on internally, we're doing what we call mental compulsions. And a lot of times those mental compulsions don't make a lot of sense. 
I may be, you know, stuck on a thought about, I don't know, wanting to, you know, have sex with my son because I'm changing his diaper. And so I may be doing a lot of mental compulsions around that in my head, but I may also feel an urge to do something outwardly. I may go wash my hands because to me, that makes me feel dirty. That makes sense to me, right? But outwardly, it may not make sense to other people. Or I may go do something, you know, nice for him to try and cancel that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, like you owe him something because of a thought, because of an right. intrusive thought. Yeah, yeah. That I think that description, I think, is a really perfect lead in to start talking about some treatment options, too. And I know that you are a huge advocate, as am I, you know, I know we're very aligned on this, of exposure and response prevention or ERP. Um, I don't directly work with a large number of people who have OCD as a primary diagnosis, but I do work with a lot of people with various types of anxiety. I also work with a lot of people who have trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and exposure therapy is often a huge part of their treatment plans as well. Um, would you be willing to describe kind of from your end, like what ERP is, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah. I love ERP. So ERP is the therapy that saved my life. I credit it with that. I think that ERP opened up the, you know, kind of, it opened up my mental space enough to really work on a lot of things, including post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. I think that for those of us with OCD, a lot of times the OCD is so strong. It is just, it becomes the main character in our lives. It is the main character. We kind of become, like I said in my post, we become shells of ourselves, right? Because we don't know what we want. We only know what OCD wants. And we've been living by its rules so long that we have no identity. And so exposure and response prevention allows us to stop living by OCD's rules, and it starts letting us live by our own. And the way we do that is by exposing ourselves to the things that we fear or the things that bring us distress in a safe, controlled manner with a specialist. And we don't carry out the rituals. And when we don't carry out the rituals, we start to teach our brain a new way to relate to our fears. Some people will say that habituation happens. So habituation is when your, you know, your anxiety goes up during an exposure. And then after a period of time, it starts to come down. And over time, you start to feel less anxious. And then, you know, Sometimes you can habituate, which means you essentially eliminate that anxiety, but we're also finding that that doesn't always have to be the case. And that sometimes for people with severe OCD, that can be unrealistic. So we talk a lot about inhibitory learning, which is essentially teaching us new, relate, new ways to relate to the fear. It means I may always have a strong feeling of distress around certain obsessions, but I have still learned through ERP to lean into that fear, welcome the uncertainty that it brings, and live my life the way I want to through acceptance and through sort of experience, right? Teaching my brain, hey, I'm going to be afraid of this thing, 
And that's okay because I know that whatever the outcome of this scary thing, I can cope. Mm -hmm. The way I, I have a super ridiculous and implausible metaphor that I use to describe the, the emotional experience of practicing exposure therapy. And I, I do a ridiculous one on purpose because I've learned the hard way that if you do a non-ridiculous one, eventually it's going to have actually happened to somebody and then they're not going to appreciate that metaphor as much. <laughs> so I try, to, I try to think like, what, what do I think is a safe territory as far as like, no one's gonna be like, oh, that happened. So the way I explain it is like, let's say you're at the zoo and you fall into the tiger pit. Now, obviously, the moment you realize I am in the tiger pit, there is a tiger 20 feet away from me, and there's nothing protecting me from this tiger. Your initial response is going to be panic, terror, dread, I'm going to die, right? But let's say that for some reason, the tiger leaves you alone. The tiger just doesn't really seem all that interested in you. Now, your, your, your feelings are not going to go away quickly, right? And this is where it gets really implausible. For some reason in this scenario, no one helps you out of the tiger pit. You're in there for just days on end, right? And every day, the tiger just does his own thing. He just, you know, he wakes up, stretches, walks around, takes a bath, goes about his own business. After some amount of time in the tiger pit, your reaction to seeing the tiger will start to change, right? You, if you've been in there for two weeks and this tiger shows no interest in harming you, at some point, you're not going to be like, oh my gosh, it's going to eat me. At some point, you're going to be like, oh, there's the tiger. Hey, tiger, how you doing today? Because your body cannot stay in a fight or flight state indefinitely without something triggering it to reoccur, right? Do you need to talk? No, he's to good. Okay. He's okay. good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. No worries. No, I love uh, that. I love that metaphor. Good. I'm glad it makes sense great. to you too. It does. I think I like to, I like thinking of OCD as the tiger. Exactly. And, you know, here's the thing. We folks with OCD, you know, recovery, we always say recovery is not linear. It's not a straight mm -hmm. line. You don't go through ERP necessarily and get better and get cured and you don't have to do ERP anymore. Mm -hmm. ERP really becomes a way of living. Yeah. And it becomes something that we learn to practice regularly. However, outside of therapy, where we maybe build what we call a hierarchy of exposures. So maybe we start with some, you know, mild discomfort and then start building up in our regular lives. What that looks like really is leaning into uncertainty and making tough choices whenever we have the opportunity. And so it really becomes learning to live with that tiger in the enclosure, you know, the tiger may come over and it may say hi, or maybe it's cranky one day and it's going to growl a little bit and, you know, make some funky moves. And, you know, maybe we're going to feel some discomfort and freak out a little bit, but we have our skills to cope and we know how to cope with that tiger. Yeah. But you aren't going to kill the tiger. <laughs> no, it's, no. Yeah. You, you will not defeat the tiger you are going to coexist with the tiger, hopefully peacefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, there may come a day, one day where we can see that we actually defeat the tiger. I hope yeah. we don't kill it because I'm not into <laughs> killing animals. <laughs> um, but 
And I, I really hope for that day. But for yeah. right now, ERP really is the best thing that we have to help as many people as possible mm -hmm. in a very safe, evidence-based way. And it really is life-saving. Um, learning to cope with OCD and coexist with it has opened up my world in ways that I never knew were possible. And to be honest, a lot of us will say things like, you know, I wish I could go back to my life before OCD. I yeah. wish I could go back to my life, you know, before I started having all these really scary symptoms and intrusive thoughts. And to that, I say life can honestly be better than it was before OCD because ERP mm. gives you the skills to cope, not just with the uncertainty brought on by OCD, but the uncertainty brought on by life because life is really uncertain. That is a very powerful statement. You know, you don't have to go back. That actually isn't as good as what you could have if you really learn and practice these tools. And that takes me back to like way back to the start of the podcast. We were talking about proof, right? And so I'm about to make a bold statement and I, I welcome disagreement, although I don't think you will disagree. But if you do, that's okay. I don't know for, for any anxiety disorder. And I think I would even say also for PTSD, put all that under this umbrella of what I'm about to say. I don't know that you can really get to a point where symptoms are significantly reduced without doing some type of exposure, because without the exposure component, you're only doing theoretical mental work, basically. And our brains need proof. So if you are having this recurring intrusive thought, so the thought is the stimuli, right? The real problem is, is the distress that this thought creates, right? The emotions that are generated by this distressing, disturbing, unwanted thought. And so that emotion is the thing you're trying to make go away in the moment. And at some point you stumble across something that makes that emotion go away, whether that's you know, rewriting that paper seven times, washing your hands, however, you know, whatever it may be, you stumble across something that for it, at least it, you know, temporarily, the feeling subsides for a bit. So your brain then has proof. This thing gives me relief. This behavior gives me relief from this emotion. Temporary relief. But when you haven't even found temporary relief up to that point, you will take temporary relief because it is certainly better than no relief. Until you can prove to your brain that there is another pathway you can take from that emotion that will reduce the emotion, I don't think the behaviors are going to change. Because if you think there's only one way that you can solve a problem, you will apply that solution every time that problem occurs. Whether that problem is an intrusive thought, whether that problem is a trauma trigger, whether that problem is a desire to avoid, if you only know one way to make the feeling go away, you're going to do that every time you have the feeling. And the only way I think that's ever going to change is if someone can help prove to you there is another way to make that feeling go away. I am so in agreement with you. I couldn't nod my head anymore. Um, if I tried, I was going to come through the screen nodding my head. <laughs> and it's funny because I was having this conversation with my psychiatrist of all people about how really when it comes down to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or really any kind of therapy, it's 
it's necessary to have, you know, in my opinion, that exposure component, right? And of course, with OCD, we want to make sure it's not just exposure, but exposure with the response prevention. Because if someone's right. being exposed to a fear and they're still doing rituals, they're they're simply feeding that cycle of OCD. Mm-hmm. You're strengthening but, it. Yes, absolutely strengthening mm-hmm. it. You're making it worse. Um, but you have to have that exposure component. And I like to think of it as sort of being a hands-on learner, right? We can learn all these wonderful things and learn all these really practical skills in therapy, but are they going to do us any good if we haven't learned how to apply them outside of therapy? Because when we get out to real life, that is the ultimate exposure. And that's why having a specialist I think is so important because that's the person who is going to teach you in a very safe way, you know, not totally safe because we can't eliminate all risk, but in a safe and controlled manner, collaboratively, they're going to teach you to take those risks and to welcome that uncertainty and to feel empowerment on the other side of it. Because I always say in group, you know, life, life is a risk. Life is not guaranteed, and we do all of these things to try and keep ourselves safe. But OCD will find any evidence, or as you call it, proof that life is unsafe and that we can't do things in order to keep us trapped. I mean, honestly, my house could you know, burn down around me right now. Right. We never know. But with exposure, as well as the cognitive techniques, and even the metacognitive techniques, we learn that it is okay to accept risk. Yeah, so just just to make it crystal clear for any listeners, ERP is not something that you should do by yourself, right? You should should be guided through this by a professional. I know that it's really trendy on social media to give people a lot of, "Here's, here's what you can do instead of therapy. Now, it it is something that you may do by yourself, like between therapy sessions, but setting up and executing the entire protocol by yourself with no guidance from a professional is not recommended, right? No, it's not recommended. So I want to acknowledge the fact that a lot of folks, for a lot of folks, therapy is still a privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Not all of Of us can access therapy. And that may be why someone is listening to this podcast or watching it. And for those folks, I would like to say that there are different avenues. You can contact the IOCDF to see if you can find support groups. They have a support group listing and you can learn a lot of things through support group. It still doesn't replace therapy, but it can be helpful. I'll shout out my friends, Kimberly Quinlan and Nathan Peterson. They both have self-directed online ERP courses and they do, you know, help you through the process of ERP in a safe way that's designed by a clinician. And also Jenna Overbaugh, who is another friend of mine who's a clinician, she also has a lot of wonderful workshops that you can access online through her Instagram page that will teach you a lot of the nuts and bolts of ERP. There's options out there, but please do not try this at home in a vacuum completely by yourself because there is so much nuance 
I think, to learning how to welcome uncertainty and really have an acceptance of it and have an acceptance of the disorder. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, it's sorry, so hard to do it. No, you're fine. It's so hard to do it without someone there to guide you. Yeah. Something you said just just a few minutes ago that I want to like reiterate and actually maybe even like go one step further with is you were talking about how just, you know, having head knowledge in and of itself it is not going to be enough, right? And that's that's something I tell people all the time because we, you know, I run an intense, I run multiple intensive outpatient programs. They're eight hours a week of therapy. So peep and and half of it is psychoeducation. And then even in the even in the the group psychotherapy, the process group component, there's still a lot of information and a lot of interventions and a lot of teachings woven into that. So people who are doing these, my groups, and I'm sure your groups too, get a lot of really high quality information and knowledge in a relatively short period of time. And that is great. But what I want to, what I always want to make sure people know is that in and of itself, possessing that knowledge, it won't actually do anything. If it is just knowledge in your head, what it actually is, is trivia. You could crush Depression and anxiety trivia night at your local establishment. But is it going to change your life if that is where it stays? No, it will not. You have to apply it if you want to see the outcomes of this. So, I've okay, yeah, as you've probably gathered by now, metaphors are kind of my zone, right? This is my metaphor for all therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, whatever it may be. The client, whoever they may be, in, in, in your life, you, the client, are the general of your life. I am your strategist, okay? I can tell you what I think you're going to be up against. I can tell you what I think is going to give you the, the optimal likelihood of victory. I can tell you what adjustments I think you might want to make, depending on what unexpected situations we find ourselves in. But I cannot execute any of my plans. I have no ability to directly change anything. The person responsible for putting all these ideas into practice is the therapy client. And and life does not change in the office, in, in, in the therapy room. You can get the precursors to change in therapy. You, you get what you need, you get, you get the seeds, right? But your actual battle isn't, isn't in my office or your office or the group therapy room the battle is out there in the world and you need to take what you get from from these these environments and you need to apply it out there otherwise nothing changes absolutely 100% and you know it's funny what i love i think the most about erp which is something i hated when i started it well first of all i hated erp anyway because when my therapist told me you're going to do scary things And we're going to do all these things that you just told me that really make you freaked out. I said, "Mm, no, bye. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that's a big hurdle for a lot of us, right? But the other thing was we get homework and we got a lot of homework that is basically go home and do all these scary things and then let me know how it was. I didn't want to do it. You know, and I think that's a big roadblock for us, but that's exactly what ERP does is it teaches you to do the skills on your own so that when you get out of therapy, ideally, you're going to continue using them. And I think that's what's so different about it from a lot of other modalities. 
And one of the things I love the most now on the other side, because that homework is so empowering. It, it reminds me a lot. That description reminds me a lot of the first time I went to physical therapy. I was having a lot of, uh, I was having some knee problems. I was having a lot of pain in my knee. So I go, I went to my doctor. He said, we, we're going to set you up with this physical therapist. I go to physical therapy and she, I'm paraphrasing, but basically what she said is, <laughs> that's okay. Basically what, what she said is, so you, you know, you know how your knee hurts? I said, yeah. And it, like, it hurts when you move it. She said, yeah. Or I said, yeah. And she said, okay, we're going to move it more. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I actually went to physical therapy and I 150% agree. They told me, they said, you know, in order to get the shoulder back into place and, you know, really start to use it again, you have to move it. And I was like, no, that's the opposite of what I want to do. Right. Can you make it not hurt without making it hurt? And and with your body and your brain, the answer generally is going to be no. There's not really a way to do that, unfortunately. That's, unfortunately, that's the path. <laughs> unfortunately not. But I will say this for anyone who is thinking of starting ERP or just starting ERP and is really scared, because I know it can feel really overwhelming and scary to be told, okay, we're going to start confronting all these really awful, scary thoughts and scary things, you know, that are making you do these safety behaviors, basically, in order to try and alleviate that anxiety. It's going to feel irresponsible. It's going to feel really scary and really big. But on the other side of that is so much freedom and so much empowerment. It can get to a place, and this is going to sound super weird. It can get to a place where ERP becomes fun. Challenging yourself becomes fun because on the other side of that challenge lies more freedom, more freedom from OCD and more freedom from being shackled to the idea of gaining certainty. And that opens us up to take so many beautiful risks and to not be so afraid of failing because we know that whatever the outcome in life, we can cope. Mm -hmm. I 100% I agree. And, and I think that's true for like, actually, a lot of therapeutic modalities is that they can be fun. And, you know, somebody in the middle of their darkest hour, it, it is going to sound weird to that person, but it, it, it's absolutely right. And, and you can get to the point, even with like cognitive distortions that relate to your depression, for example, where there's almost a game like quality to it, you know, it can, it can be kind of like being in debate club in high school, where you're like, really brain, that's, that's what you're going to, th that's, your, that's your best argument for why I'm a worthless piece of crap to that. Okay. I'm, that's not that hard for me to defeat, but you can try. And yeah, there can almost be a playful quality to it. Once you get to that point where you have confidence, I think that's the key. When you have confidence in your ability to handle the symptoms, then a lot of the, the, the scariness and, and the, like the dread kind of starts to fade away and it becomes just like a, a thing that you just have to do but that is very very worth doing it is and i just want to validate how hard and how scary it is because you know having it become fun that doesn't take away the fear in the beginning and it doesn't take away the fact that the lows can be really low and that we we really can feel you know like maybe we just don't want to exist because the thoughts won't go away. And it's okay to feel that way. I've been there. 
And, you know, that's exactly what community, peer support, and therapy is for. I think we've kind of come full circle with that because that's where we started. And it's it's just such, yeah, it's such an important part of treatment to, to have a community. Um, not not just to get help, not just to get ideas, but just to have camaraderie. Because no matter what diagnosis or diagnoses you have from a mental health perspective, it's a lonely world out there. Or at least it can be a lonely world out there if you don't realize, like, your people exist. There's so many other people out there who are dealing with almost the exact same thoughts, feelings, behaviors, challenges, but you're not going to get that, you know, going to the mall or going to the post office because they're not things that people talk about usually openly in public settings. So you feel like you're the only one in the world, even though you're probably meeting people every single day. Statistically speaking, if you leave the house, you probably encounter at least one person dealing with 90% the same thing as you, but you don't know it because you're not in a setting where it's talked about. But when you get in that setting and you realize it is not just me, I am not alone in this battle. I'm not the only one out there. Just that, just that revelation, even without any treatment components, just that by itself is so valuable and so powerful. And I hope that no one neglects the importance of that. I 150,000% agree. <laughs> I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me from group was that I'm not alone and that I am capable of making changes in my life and making friends with people who are like me and that I'm not unworthy of getting better and I'm not unworthy of good relationships because we become so used to feeling that we are the only one like us that we start to shut everything else out and everyone else out without realizing it. Mm -hmm. We just assume no one understands, no one can relate, no one can help. And we resign ourselves to the fact that this is going to be a journey of one when it, it does not have to be that way. Absolutely not. So glad you had me on. Yeah. So really quick for, for people who were not familiar with you prior to this episode, but who want to get more from you, what are the best ways that a person can have more access to you and your insights and your knowledge? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, such a tall ask. So I am on Instagram and TikTok. And according to Scott, I should post more on TikTok. So I will be on more present on TikTok. So I am Alexandra is obsessed on both. And I can also be found at the IOCDF, which is IOCDF.org. I do a lot of live streams there as well as blogs that I've written about OCD, depression, and actually trauma and how to do ERP when you have trauma. And let's see, where else can you find me? And you can find me at NoCD. So it's at, I think it's treatmyocd.com. You can find me there. I run support groups. They are for members of NoCD only. But if you think you may have OCD or are looking for resources, they have a rich library of resources and blog articles. 
and you can also get treatment if that's something you need. So it's a great place to go. And I will just shout out that I follow Alex on Instagram and I have learned a lot from her uh, about OCD that even even my I did not learn in my doctoral program or my master's program or my internships. Okay. So a um, lot of really, really good information on there. That is so sweet. I've learned so much <laughs> from you too. And I've enjoyed our friendship. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And thank you so much for joining me today. I know we both got probably some family matters to attend to, so I'll let you get going, but we will talk soon, all right? Thank you, Scott. Thanks, take care.